Hello, and welcome to another edition of Speaking Culturally. I am Andre Taylor, and today we are here with Matthew Champagne, a public historian and a PhD student at North Carolina State University. Uh, welcome to Speaking Culturally, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me, Dre. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I want you to tell me a little bit about you and your research. Okay. Um, well, about me. So, like you said, I'm a public historian, and I don't really honestly know what public history was until I started working at a historic site of Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. It's called the Fairbanks House Museum. It's the oldest timber-framed home in North America. Basically, it means it's just like the oldest wooden structure um, that was once lived in. And it was at this point when I really started to get interested in historic homes. Um, now, this was when I was about like 17. I was just like, an, I've been a nerd my entire life. So <laughs> I saw that this historic house was in my community and was like, I want to like go and volunteer. So I did. That was consumed five summers of my life. And they were fabulous summers. Um, but it was at that point I realized that like queer people are not often represented in historic homes. And that I felt was particularly problematic as LGBTQ plus youth are right. at a 120% higher risk of homelessness than um, youth who are both heterosexual and cisgender identifying. Right. Um, and just sort of in this like popular imagination of the ideal American family, and I use that in scare quotes, um, it's particularly white people of middle class means who are an opposite sex couple that have 2.5 children and like this dog named Spot. <laughs> like we all know what I'm talking about when I say this. Right. And like, yes, that does not encapsulate many identities, most identities, and most like family dynamics that are actually in reality the fabric of the United States. Um, but my interest is particularly in the denial of LGBTQ plus youth and um, same-sex couples, and particularly found family in this popular image that we see of queer people. So that's when I started on this sort of journey of, like, do house museums even, like, that, that have tangible relations um, or connections to the um, history of the queer community or the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus community even exist? Right. Like, I, I didn't know. There's no BuzzFeed list for this. So um, I went about trying to create it, and that was largely because I first visited this site um, known as the Alice Austin House in Staten Island, New York. Okay. And um, I was an undergrad at the time and was just uh, trying to entertain my gay uncle who had come to visit me. And I had heard about the Alice Austin House before, didn't really know much about it, um, and then after visiting, I was like, oh, shit, we did exist. Now, that home now, um, is it Clear Comfort? Is that mm -hmm. what it's called? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now... That's the sort of historic name for it. Um, Austin was the last generation in her family to occupy the home right. as a residence. Um, but that had been its historic name for her grandparents or her parents and great-grandparents and all that jazz. Now, it was interesting uh, reading up about her, mm -hmm. and you see she was a photographer mm -hmm. and lived alone. Mm, and... Not really true. Right. Yeah. But it was interesting how people said, you know, she was too busy to marry, and when it was too busy to marry, it was Wild. too busy to marry a man. Yes. 
but then you have a name Gertrude Tate that comes mm-hmm. involved. So tell me about this relationship between those two. Well, so I, I'm going to talk about, I'll talk about the relationship, but also sort of how it's represented, which you talked about. Okay. Um, so when I visited the Alice Austin house, uh, because I had said, heard such good things about it, I was like very excited and went up to the site. I met the site manager at the time and my uncle and I were sort of sat down to watch these two documentaries to sort of orient us to the space. And one was just like, uh, I don't know, like a very well-intentioned, like 1970s-esque documentary of that, like, I think the PBS or public television had created about Alice Austin, about the Alice Austin house. Because that's around the time that the site was trying to be preserved and open to the public and all that jazz. And um, the documentary was like 20 minutes long or something like that. It was like fairly good in its content, I felt. Right. Except for like the minute or two when they talked about Austin's sexuality. And basically, she was this female photographer of the early 1900s, the late 1800s. And she did work very similar to Jacob Reese, actually. But because she's a woman who had relationships with other women, she doesn't really get her um, credit that she deserves. Right. And she was this woman who sort of was famous for, like, daring to expose her ankles, climbing atop fence posts in order to get, like, the best shot she could. And so she defied these sort of gendered norms of her time. And that was what the documentary was talking about, was her defying these gendered norms in many ways, one of which was that she never married. And they sort of were like, oh, and it's just because she had so many suitors. She couldn't settle on which one. She was (laughs) such a fickle woman. And it's nowhere in this entire 20-minute documentary, 20-plus minutes, honestly, do they mention Gertrude Tate, who she lived with for 30 years and had an over half a century long relationship with. So why do you think they're not mentioning Gertrude? Well, they did. They well, So the second documentary that you watch is this five minute documentary that was made very recently to um, celebrate the Alice Austin House as this LGBTQ plus uh, history landmark in the state, in the city of New York. And um, the current site manager is trying to do this um, delicate balance, really, of how do we talk about it? Because, yeah, Alice and Gertrude never were allowed to marry. Like, that wasn't a poss- that was even a possibility at the time. Um, they um, lived together for 30 years, but we have no, like, documented evidence of their sort of sexual um, encounters or their, like, bedroom activities. Um, so the site manager is doing her is doing really good work in terms of trying to talk about it for the first time mentioning Gertrude, acknowledging them as quote partners. Um, but to show the five minute documentary where she does that in tandem with the twenty plus one twenty plus minute one right. doesn't I don't know, as as a gay and trans identifying person, it hurt me to see that older representation still incorporated into the interpretation. But, like I said, the 20 plus documentary does do some good work. Um, So I don't know if necessarily it should be entirely negated. That's what my dissertation is really trying to focus on. It's sort of how do you give a historically authentic tour while also not privileging these systems of oppression that have historically denied LGBTQ plus people 
their agency. Right. Like, it, like, should Alice Austin be identified as a lesbian? That's the question I'm ultimately... Like, it's not just Austin. I'm looking at several other sites. But that's the question I'm trying to identify. Is should we use more explicit terms? Should we use 21st century terminology in order to describe these experiences? Do you think that we're even ready to start using those terms in the 21st century? Or are we, are we holding close to our... 19th and 20th century mm-hmm. so i think in the scholarship absolutely like in terms of getting out of the sort of public history realm of this and going into the sort of academic historiography scholars are not willing in any way shape and form to like actually call a spade a spade and like okay to their credit 18th and 19th century cultures were obviously different from ours right. like that's like you can't deny that um, more specifically culture was very segregated and like we typically talk about it along racial lines if people think about it a little more critically that's true but culture was also more segregated along class lines and gendered lines there was very much what we call homosocial circles meaning that like it was not uncommon for all male groups and all female groups to exist but and, and, and and this has led scholars to sort of deny the existence of queer people in the past because they're like, oh, well, everyone just like wrote with a heavy pen to their same-sex friend. And it's like, okay, no, like that's not really true. Like granted, um, many queer people did not overtly transgress these norms right. because it did mean the possibility of incarceration, um, separation from your family, the loss right. of your job, um, just like cultural stigma generally that made it impossible to, in some cases to get housing and education, which we're still seeing today. Um, but that being said, if you actually understand queer culture and you're able to clock it, in sort of the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries, right. then you're able to see when the manifestations of these relationships, even though they were so culturally acceptable, transgress the norms of the time and shouldn't just be chalked up to sort of the overflows of friendship. <laughs> Bullshit. Sorry. No, you're fine, you're much, fine. That's how I feel. Now, what do you think needs to happen uh, to not only talk about Alice, but talk about Alice and Gertrude mm-hmm. together, not mm-hmm. separately, but to make sure that we, when we do talk about them, we're talking about them as a unit. Absolutely. So how do we, to to, to include them within the culture mm-hmm. and, you know, and mm-hmm. preserve their heritage, how do we do that in the 21st century? Well, so like I said, it very much is a part of um, updating, like updating how we interpret the sources that have survived that are very traditional in terms of our like letters and diaries and wills and things of that nature. Um, like we need to start calling these things for what they are. Like when someone is clearly very visibly upset or in love or what have you over something that has happened with this other person, like it's not just, oh, like they really care about their dear friend. <laughs> What? Right. Like, what? But then again, we even need to go um, beyond these the, the, the list of the traditionally accepted sources. Um, we need to start looking at um, sort of undocumented or intangible parts of these relationships 
But even more importantly, even more importantly, oh my gosh, I'm getting like, pa like passionate. I'm just like angry. I'm getting passionate. Just when I think about scholars who like don't think like this, it just like drives me bonkers. Um, but who still claim to be like able to talk about the history of the community, right. they and actually in the community. Um, we need to have a cultural shift, a discipline shift, a just shift, like across the. Um, broad range of public historians where we stop worrying about whether or not we're going to out somebody historically. Right. Outing someone in the 21st century who is alive and well and has access to the language and the like somewhat more accepting culture is one thing. Right. But outing someone who's been dead for 150 years who didn't have access to this language and even if they had couldn't have used it because it would have meant their incarceration that isn't something entirely different right. and we need to stop worrying that it's sort of like bad to out these people because no start worrying that if you don't start doing this good work today that that means that this person spends one more day in the closet for the remainder of their legacy like we need to start worrying more so that we're going to be keeping people in the closet as opposed to accidentally outing them i wonder where that fear comes from because... oh it's homophobia it's absolute homophobia that's just pervasing or perva um, rearing its ugly head, really, in the scholarship and in the practice of public history, where our culture still sees it as something negative to be gay, right. to be trans, to be openly not uh, to be openly a gender or sexual minority in some way, shape, and form. Because if we did see these things as positives, as something worth celebrating, then there wouldn't be this fear about identifying someone as gay. No, there wouldn't be this fear. There would be celebration of, oh my gosh, we have a figure in our, or our subject of our historic site who we could possibly use to represent the LGBTQ plus past. Like, that's something to be celebrated. And the city of New York in their like um, NYC LGBT plus landmarks right. is starting to do that, starting to realize this, but even then it's not, it's not becoming a best practice or um, sort of uh, traditional discipline because it's something that's not considered the best practice or traditional culturally, just like in terms of US culture, we still don't really celebrate our um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, um, intersex, pansexual, asexual, and um, every other sexual and gender minority. It's just not done, and it should be. So it, it seems like there's a push to say, oh, we, you know, we, we, we think that it would have to encompass, for lack of better terms, outing those people from the past who have been, you know, who are gone and aren't here. And, you know, to add them to the heritage part of it where you can say, it didn't just start with me. This is something that has been going on. Mm -hmm. So how do we get, using New York as, as, a, as a basis, how does, let's say, the South pick up and say, okay, we too had this heritage and culture? The South does have this heritage, very strong heritage. I mean, you look at John Howard's Men Like That, and you look at the Polly Murray Center up in Durham, mm -hmm. North Carolina, and like, this South got... Is, is on par with the rest of the country. Right. Um, it just historically, the scholarship has denied the South any sort of visibility, um, particularly because of this, like, um, tradition of religion. And I'm sorry, I totally just cut you off. No, you're fine, you're fine. So, I mean, keep going, because this, this is interesting, because I want, I want to know more about 
because the, the dynamics between the North and the South are always going to be relevant when you're talking about anything in this country, North, South. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, but when you true. talk about the LGBTQ community and recognizing those who in the past have been a part of this community, do you think it's a better job done in the South than it is in the North? Mm, see, like those relative equivalences, I'm not comfortable doing mm-hmm. just because like, not to throw anyone under the, or any site under the bus, but like President James Buchanan's Wheatland up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. this sort of like, not Lancaster maybe specifically, but sort of Pennsylvania, this like thought of as a bastion of progressivism, especially for people of color um, during the 19th century, right. um, is one of the sites that needs the most work in terms of how they talk about Buchanan and his um, partner, um, William Rufus King. Um, now granted, like again, there is a direct relationship between how the scholars have traditionally right. talked about these subjects to how the museums talk about them, and even before the scholars, how the archives chose to collect um, documentation of these people and their partners, um, which is a si- is like an intentional silence to, t- to like cite Michelle Trulow's, like, um, Silence in the Past, the production of history. Um, Like, even when the archives were created and, like, Buchanan's papers and King's papers were collected um, amongst their other, like, um, material culture, um, archivists at that time were very conscious of, like, okay, we gotta, like, save the stuff that keeps them in a good light and not keep the stuff or hide the stuff um, that... Does that doesn't portray him in a good light, and meaning like in not in a good light, meaning as a gay man, right? Uh, because again, like this cultural feeling that to be gay is to be bad is not something new, right? Um, but even then, it's like some some people um, did like burned their own letters out of fear. Like um, I'm trying to think. Oh my gosh, what's his name? What's his name? It's a sleeper McCann house up in um, Gloucester, Massachusetts where um, Henry Lewis Sleeper, um, he actually didn't really burn a lot of his letters um, that he wrote to his neighbor, A. Pyatt Andrews, um, but his family burned a lot of A. Pyatt's responses to his letters. So, like, the letters that Sleeper sent to Pyatt are, we we got, and, like, they queer. Like they, they, they are not just the overflows of friendship. Like hi, but also the Super McCann House does the good work of identifying him as a gay man. Okay. They have other problems where he was a fabulously wealthy gay man, so the tour is more so about his like things than him. But they do that good work. But so back to my original point is that at every point in the production of history, from the creation of these sources themselves, to the saving of these sources themselves in the archives, to the writing about these sources themselves in the historiography, to then the historiography being implemented in these public history sites, there's just this compounding silence that has to be broken up. And whether you are in the North or you're in the South, there are people doing that work, and there are people who are not doing that work. And at some sites, there's a mixture of two, and it's a clashing of heads, and it's so interesting. Um, Like, for example, at the Polly Murray Center. um, So Polly Murray is this civil rights activist 
who is very gender non-conforming. Right. And the site decided to use she, her, hers pronouns because that is what Polly uses um, in Polly's autobiography. Meanwhile, when I went for a tour, uh, it was a walking tour because the site isn't open yet. Right. Um, they have some outdoor signage that still uses these very traditional she, her, hers pronouns. And somebody, some member of the community, had taken it upon themselves to take a Sharpie to those signs to use wow. masculine pronouns to identify Polly in a more masculine way, i.e. Uh, he, his right. pronouns, um, as a trans man. Um, wow. And when I spoke with one of the um, interpreters about this, uh, he identified as um, a cis gay man um, who used traditional he, his pronouns, um, who hadn't even noticed that this had been done. And um, we had a very interesting conversation about this historical authenticity and how although this interpreter thought that had Polly lived in the 21st century that Polly would have transitioned, right. he still felt that she, hers pronouns was appropriate, particularly because he argued, and I, I do tend to agree with this, is that at sites like the Polly Murray Center, there should be an argument that the pronouns really don't matter. Right. And that is not to say that pronouns are not important. Right, As someone I get what who you're uses saying. they them pronouns, and it really appreciates when people do use those pronouns to identify me um, and to discuss me and my work particularly. Um, pronouns are very important, especially when people have very specific ones. But when we're talking about this historical authenticity, we should use people like Polly Murray, who were gender nonconforming, as an opportunity to talk about. Um, the importance of pronouns, but also the flexibility of pronouns. That's why at the Polly Murray Center, they should be using she, her, hers, they, them, theirs, he, him, his. Um, just this wide variety of pronouns because right. the why, while the pronouns in Polly's case aren't really important, what is really important is to give a nod to the existence of gender nonconforming people at this time. Um, and like, like for example, like I have many friends, like the interpreter himself even offered himself up as an example. Um, saying, like, yeah, I use he, him, his pronouns. But that doesn't mean, and he sort of struggled for words. Um, so I said, like, it doesn't mean, like, you're not going to find you in a pop and shoe or a pop and heel if the shoe's right. Right. Right? <laughs> and uh, he was like, yes, exactly. And so we should be able to be talking about how there shouldn't be this correlation just because you use she, her, hers pronouns or he, him, his pronouns that then you fall into this sort of tradition of, oh, okay, you use she, her, hers pronouns because you have ovaries and you therefore also wear dresses. Or you have testes and you use he, him, his pronouns and then you also wear pants. Right. Like, we need to be breaking down this binary and to be focusing our energy on sort of cementing the binary in the opposite direction, i.e. using he, him, his pronouns to identify Polly Murray, isn't, I think, necessarily the best way to do this work. We should be broadening this definition and broadening this binary to have a wide variety of inclusive practices in showing someone who is perhaps traditionally female presenting or gender non-conforming presenting and then using like a whole wide variety of pronouns to describe your experiences and then going into their personal stories to right. show how they transgress these norms not only in their dress not only in their speech but also in their actions 
Well, Matthew, I thank you, and you are doing the work, and you're I very much so. appreciated. I hope I'm doing the good work. And uh, I'm thank just trying you. my damnedest, like everyone. <laughs> well, thank you, and thank I'm you looking either. forward to reading this PhD uh, dissertation when it comes out. <laughs> if it comes out, I'm looking forward to having it like written because that means it's done. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us here at Speaking Culturally.